we're not building this to sell it. We're building it to be a long-term viable solution. Welcome to episode 194 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Chris interviews Travis Carter, co-founder of U.S. Internet, a Minneapolis internet and data services provider. The company is deploying fiber in the community and offering high-quality internet access at affordable rates. Travis and Chris have a conversation about the company, what it's been like working with the city, and the philosophy behind their pricing and customer service. This is a content-rich interview in which we learn how a local provider began and how it has evolved. Here's Chris talking with Travis Carter, co-founder of U.S. Internet. Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits Podcast, and I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, I'm in Travis Carter's office at USI. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So just briefly, what is USI? So U.S. Internet is an internet service provider that actually started in the basement of our apartment in 1995 in southeast Minneapolis. And we evolved through dial-up, DSL, ISDN, you know, the myriad of, I think we counted the other day, 35 different uh, internet connectivity technologies over the last 21 years. And today we're sitting here with the topic we're discussing, our fiber product, as well as co-location, messaging, and other supportive internet-type services. And I think people in the area might know you from the Wi-Fi project. Yeah. In uh, 2007, the city of Minneapolis awarded us the um, idea at the time was to have a uh, ubiquitous 100% metro Wi-Fi network in the city of Minneapolis. So we proceeded to install 2,500 Wi-Fi access points around uh, Minneapolis. And we we still run that technology today. Right. And that's been something that's been terrific for low-income folks, but it has not been a very high-performance network. No, Wi-Fi, you know, at the time it was the state of the art, but to be quite frank, it it never really lived up to the billing. It was, it's, it's difficult to you know, get predictable, reliable connectivity. And in today's world, at six megabit as our high-end product, it, it it's in its it's in its waning days of, of of use. One of the things that you've asked me as we've been talking in recent months is I think why I'm so interested in USI, US Internet, um, in part because I'm so focused on municipal networks, but um, I think a lot of the things that you've done provide good lessons for municipalities and others that want to start up. Uh, and also that... Um, I think that it's really, there's a great opportunity moving forward where where perhaps companies like U.S. Internet might be working with local governments in some ways. So uh, for anyone who's wondering why we're interviewing a private ISP, well, that's why. We've done it before, and I'm sure we'll be doing it again. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, one of the things that I think you, that really gives people, will give people a sense of who you are and what you've done is um, is you, you talk occasionally about Rodney Dangerfield. And, I, and just tell me a little bit about how the um, the movie Back to School resonates with yeah, your experience. It's, it's one of those uh, one of those scenes that I, I remember and I, and I often look back upon is there's Rodney sitting in the class with the traditional highly educated English professor at the board writing down how stereotypical business is done and Rodney keeps interrupting and raising his hands and saying, well oh, what about this? what about that? you know yeah. this is how it happens in the real world And it um, you know as I hear people talk and I hear people discuss, technology and applications and the process of bringing it you know to to bear i often want to raise my hand and go well what about uh, this and what about that and um you know so we 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 approach technology from a very 
practical application standpoint, not so much from a theory standpoint. You know, we actually get out in the ground and dig holes and hang fiber and bury fiber and hang radios and, you know, service customers and, and do the whole fulfillment cycle. And so it always takes me back to that movie because I'm like, well, hey, you know what? You're missing a lot. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pieces to this puzzle. And I, quite frankly, I think a lot of people um, that I've talked to, they have one or two of the pieces, but it's a it's a thousand piece puzzle. I think one of the things that you mentioned to us is that you get into fiber in part because of your frustration with the wireless, not being able to do the things you wanted to do with it. Yeah, you know, pre-Netflix, Wi-Fi was great. Uh, Post-Netflix, it it caused a lot of contention on the network. About 82% of our bandwidth today is some sort of streaming entertainment. And so with, you know, with high def and, and the other, you know, even 4K and things in the future, it, it put a heavy, heavy, heavy constraint on the backbone. So our initial foray into fiber was how do we solve this backbone problem between our Wi-Fi nodes? We need to get those bits out of the air and onto a cable as soon as we can. And quite frankly, I didn't know anything about it, but I figured we've run fiber all over planet Earth. Somebody must know about it. So uh, our friends over at Corning came in and with their van and sat outside and opened the doors up and said, welcome to fiber. We went down to our friend at Ditch Witch and they said, here's a drill and here's how you make a hole in the ground. And, you know, we just start piecing all the puzzles together. You know, again, we're Rodney up in the classroom going, huh, this we should be able to figure out, you know, we're not really inventing anything. We're just taking things that other people invented and putting them together. And uh, that's that's how we got into fiber. And our, that was our initial plan was to hook these these nodes together to to bring egress or backhaul to this to to satisfy the ever increasing or at this point the unquenchable thirst for bandwidth. One of the impressions I've had is that as you've been doing this, you've been in your own bubble. You've been figuring out what works. You've been just making it happen. And you haven't really been paying attention to what's happening at the state or the federal level in terms of regulations. No, I, I go to a few meetings occasionally and just to try to get, yeah, we're, I always say we're in our own aquarium here. We're just kind of doing our own thing and trying to satisfy our customers' needs and expanding the network and, you know, providing all those. So yeah, I don't often have an opportunity to, to stick my head up and look at what's going on. You know, I listen to your podcast. I see a few other, uh, the Blandon Report. I like to read that of what's going on around Minnesota. But other than that, I, I'm really not well uh, versed on what's happening from a policy mm-hmm. standpoint. Because I, I, again, we're just nose to the grindstone, mm-hmm. fulfill customers. Well, I got the impression that you were unimpressed with the, the state's broadband task force and, and even some of the other trade meetings where more, some of the telephone companies are in and they're, yeah. they're still trying to claim that DSL is broadband and people don't really need very much capacity. Uh, you know, it struck me that seemed like a, a reality shock when you were first describing well, and, it. And I often try to think if I was in their shoes, that's the story I would be telling as well because they have an infrastructure that's built. I'm assuming the vast majority of it has been paid for. So it is, mm-hmm. you know, from a business standpoint, quite frankly, it's very profitable for them. So why why take a huge jump when you can take a, a minimal jump and, and, and still fall within the confines of what, you know, the FCC today is saying is acceptable broadband? I, I from a Minnesota standpoint, now again, you know, I have to preface this by saying we have the luxury of being in a high-density area. And... So when you go out into rural Minnesota, I, I took a, a, a tour one time out uh, to kind of Renville area, 
just to see what it was. And yeah, the logistics of taking a gigabit or multi-gigabit service to a farm, that's a big job. But I think, and I think you're, you know, but you could still do the town. Mm-hmm. And then you could take the, the income from the town and kind of build out from there, which is no different than what we're doing here in Minneapolis. We're taking the income, we're reinvesting it, and, and continuing to, to expand. Right. Only the difference is that CenturyLink and Frontier are taking the income from the towns and they're shipping it to shareholders and they're <coughs> giving it to their CEOs in terms of excessive pay and that sort of thing. That's actually one of your billboards is talking about the sort of excessive pay of some of your competitors. Yeah. And from a marketing standpoint, that that's a very valid you know message. You know, the thing is, you know, in these big, huge corporations, it's not just me and my business partners and, you know, 50, 50 employees working, you know, where we just kind of can do it. I mean, they've got shareholders to answer to. They've got, you know, all, mm-hmm. all the infrastructure that they need to answer to where we can basically dig a hole, pull a fiber and hook people up. Mm-hmm. Now, my hope is that we never turn into that. And that's really the core mission here is to keep a flat, lean organization that can fulfill what customers want. I mean, our mantra is very simple around here. Build a system, build a service that you want to use. Mm-hmm. And that's really key. You know, if I if I want to hook into this network, it should be exactly what I expect it to be, right? Just So really, there is no this concept of customer and service provider. We're really, everybody's the customer, including us. Well, that's something that I want to touch on. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the specific interactions you have with Minneapolis and where there's some challenges in working with local governments. You require um, people in the company to go through the experience of what a customer will see when they first sign up. Oh, Um, absolutely. I think it's very important that everybody knows. I mean, how well, everybody does already know. They've dealt with companies that are frustrating. They've dealt with companies that are difficult to get a hold of. They're, they're, they've dealt with companies that have a 27-layer telephone tree to, to ultimately get you to exactly the wrong person who then transfers you, and magically it disconnects. I mean, I'm not really sure why that happens every time. Or these games where you have to call in every year because you're... This blows me away, to be honest with you, Chris. I don't understand why your bill cannot be the same every month. <laughs> I, I mean, just the most rudimentary thing, when you go out and sell somebody a service for a dollar, how is that now magically a dollar ninety? Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you read the reviews and posts online about our service, it really amazes me when people are, one of the things they're most amazed about is that we're able to bill you correctly. You know, that's a big deal. And then secondarily, when you go to speed test and you hit the button to test my speed, it is always what you get, and quite frankly, in most cases, it's more than what you're paying for. Mm-hmm. It seems like the, the, the bar is very low. <laughs> the expectation, is, in my mind, is very, very low for, for people. And I think that's kind of our industry. You know, it's, you know we've, we've gone you know, from 110 baud modem to 10 gigabit in a, in a very short amount of time. It, you know, it, it's, it's just taking, people's, taking time for people to catch up, and I think their expectations need to be more than what, what they are today. So you've been building in a number of different neighborhoods in Minneapolis with different characteristics. And one of the things you've said is people generally assume that the higher income neighborhood are going to be the better customers. Yeah. Has that been your experience? No, I would say, now, if we were having this conversation two years ago, I would have said absolutely. And and I would say by better, I would say percentage-wise how many people adopt the technology. And, And we have noticed that the 
the higher tax base neighborhoods tend to have older residents that live in them that have less of a interest in technology because it's very easy to tell when you knock on somebody's door to sell them this new fancy fiber optic service and they're sitting there with a Motorola flip phone. They don't really have that interest in technology that maybe somebody in more of the millennial, uh, in our in Minneapolis, like the uptown neighborhood, or even in kind of the middle income neighborhoods. You know, these people, uh, technology means something to them. Mm-hmm. Internet means something to them. Speed, reliability, and, and cost, too. If I've got a multi-million dollar home in our Kenwood neighborhood here, saving... 25 to $50 a month maybe isn't as big a deal as it is to somebody else. So that's just been our, ex- our experience. And it's more about how do, how do the people value or what's their, what's their perception of value to the internet? If all you do is check your email once a week, is really a fiber optic facility the right technology for you? Probably not. Mm-hmm. One of the questions, I guess, that pops up is, is, is a measure of success the average revenue per user, or is it more about the take rate? Because you just said that in terms of success, it might be more about the number of people that are subscribing. Yeah, we've we've tried to use, you know, we'd like to get everyone hooked up. So we come in at a very well below market price point. Our, our, it's really about number of homes more than trying to get uh, the higher dollar amount. So we've gone for the price performance. You know, we're we're the fastest. Most uh, least cost internet you can get in in our service area. So we we basically get everybody. So talking about Minneapolis, you've had you know some challenges in dealing with them, and I don't think um, we're not here to say Minneapolis is doing it wrong or they're stupid or anything like that. We're here to I think we're we want to get a sense of what local governments can do to make things easier. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that when you said that you were there were some challenges in working with Minneapolis or some things that slowed you down, I immediately assumed it had to do with permitting and the rights-of-way because that's what almost everyone complains about. And you said that actually wasn't one of your main challenges. You know, if, if I was to rank Minneapolis, I would say they've been incredibly easy to work with compared to stories I've heard with other people. Um, right-of-way, the permitting department, I mean, these are all, this has been really, really, really a... a relatively easy process, but we were willing to work with them to help us understand the process. Um, our biggest issues, quite frankly, was is there was no precedent when we set up a central office or a switching station, there was no um, precedent for where those sat. So we got kind of thrown into this other bucket of other from a, from a zoning perspective, and now we had to zone ourselves you know, um, a certain way. So we had to build this little Taj Mahal in the middle of the neighborhood because they could make us, right? Mm -hmm. And and we were just assuming we could put up a little concrete building and and off we go. Just before we go to Ms. Freddie, you're building a, um, you use um, Active E, right? Correct, yeah. So you, you know, you need these huts, um, not not on every block certainly, but you need a couple in every city of what? Yeah, we figure Minneapolis will end up with eight of them. Okay. It's it's really the old-fashioned telco kind of layout from the early 1900s where yeah we have a dedicated fiber that goes to every building every house every everything and in order to do that we bring them all back into local central offices or switching stations Mm -hmm. and those were just 
from from the scheme of thing, th- that was our biggest challenge was just getting that permitted correctly. Right. So if, if I was going to put a dentist office somewhere, I have to make sure the city allows me to yeah. zone it there. You guys want to have a, a facility, that, you know, it's like you know, it's, it's not much different. Yeah. It's a little smaller than a dentist office, but you want to have racks and racks of machines, and they just don't have a precedent for yeah. that in the code. There's just there's probably been nobody else that's ever really come along wanting to do this, so they had really had no reason to have a zoning code for it. So. I think the way cities work, and again, I'm no expert, is if you don't fall within the buckets, then you go into the other bucket. And mm-hmm. once you get into the other bucket, it's just a little bit more work to go through the process. <laughs> and and uh, But I would say certainly uh, from a right-of-way standpoint and from getting permits and getting them turned in and working with all the city personnel, it's been spectacular. Mm-hmm. It, it really has, you know, but... When when we when the city says you have done something wrong, we need to fix it, right. right? Or if we need a variant, we need to ask them. So it's really quite frankly, it's just learning the process, and that really took most of our time is to learn and understand the process. So we have a meeting with them every year where we sit down and we say, all right, what did we do right last year? What did we do wrong? How can we improve it? We take all of our crews, we put them through training. And we talk about you know what you can and can't do in the city, and it's just a constant education process, and we try to make it better and better every year. I feel for other people that are having problems with the, with other cities because I'll tell you what the constituents that get this service, I mean, it's, they're 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 beyond ecstatic. Right. Well, that's one of the things I think you have found is that when you have a challenge, for instance. If um, I understand, it's been it's been a little bit more of a challenge working with the park board, which in Minneapolis is a, a much stronger organization. Um, but you found that I think um, as people are really excited about it, they will contact their elected officials, sure, and and reach out and say, you know, we think you should make it a priority to um, help or to allow um, you know U.S. Internet to invest. Well, yeah, I think you know our product kind of speaks for itself. I like to joke and say we're the second favorite brand behind the Minnesota Vikings in Minneapolis, <laughs> right? It's, you know, we, we have a very passionate and very um, kind of loyal backing behind us. And so, yeah, if, you know, for instance, with the park board, when we run into problems, we don't have to do a lot because the neighborhood associations kind of take off and, and champion the cause. Mm-hmm. And, and that works out really well. What is the challenge with the park board? I mean, for someone who doesn't even know why you would have to talk to the park board. Yeah, and I didn't know this either. Apparently, the only interaction I had with the park board is I got a speeding ticket when I was 16 from the park police. <laughs> and in my mind, I look back at the park police and I'm like, why the heck is there a park police? I don't even know what the heck it's for. But apparently, in Minneapolis, and I don't know the whole story, this is sovereign land. We've got great parks. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and you yeah. know what? You go yeah. to... I, I will I will say absolutely, you know, somebody was, was pretty clever back in the day. You know, you don't see all the houses butted up right against the lake like you do in a lot of other cities. It is no different than if I wanted to dig in your yard, I have to ask your permission, and the park board has said no. Mm-hmm. So we have to make other uh, cases or other ways to solve our routing problems with fiber. And then, unfortunately, there are certain people in the city that will not be able to get service from us. And that's just the, you know, you've got the poles being consumed by Comcast and CenturyLink, and you have the park board that's holy ground. Uh, we just have to go to, and there's just a certain people we won't get to. So for some people, it's inconvenient because you have to go a different way, but there's yeah. some people that you just can't get to otherwise. No, because their home is facing the park board, and they're sandwiched in between other houses. There's just no logical mm-hmm. way to, or safe way to get to them to bring them a fiber connection. So... We unfortunately have to tell them that at this particular moment, we're not able to bring them service. 
One of the things that I found uh, interesting was um, the big ISPs, they'll generally claim that um, the biggest threat to being able to invest is that cities are out of control and they're too hard to deal with. And um, I've gotten the impression from you that as a small ISP, one of the biggest threats you perceive is from the Comcast and the um, CenturyLinks that might take action to try and run you out of business. You know, we, we often talk about what they could possibly do, and I have yet to come up with an answer for that. Um, they're the perfect competition. You know, you always, you know, you want to always be competing against the 500-pound gorilla that has been providing substandard service for 25 years or mm-hmm. more longer. I mean, what's what's not a better situation to be in than we're in? You know, it's very simple. If you ever, you just go knock on a door, and when they open the door and say, "We've been waiting for you," mm-hmm. it's 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 a good feeling. Well, then the question is, then how come you're? I mean. Why aren't investors lining up to just throw money at you to go out and connect more people then? Well, I think it's because of our whole, you know, our whole kind of thought process here. We're not building this to sell it. We're building it to be a long-term viable solution. You know, I grew up in Minneapolis. Uh, My business partner grew up in Minneapolis. We went to Minneapolis South High School. You know, a a big goal for me next year is to wire up my family home that I grew up in. A lot of people want to spin these things and sell it off to some big entity and go sit on a beach. I'd get bored after a day on a beach. This is what I enjoy doing. If if we built this and sold it, what would I do tomorrow? You know, you got to have a reason to to get up every day. And right now, this is one of the primary things I like doing. So we're letting the network build out at a sustained rate. And the other thing I challenge people that say that we're not growing fast enough is, I challenge them to walk our network, get a brand new pair of shoes, and go walk in the city sometime. It's over 50,000 homes we're in front of right now. That's a lot of houses in just five years. And you said you're doing pretty well. Oh, we're doing amazing. Yeah, but but it's doing the simple things. Providing the service that you promise, billing the way you promised to bill. This is just unbelievable in this industry. Domino's Pizza can figure out how to get you a pizza in 30 minutes, but how come we couldn't figure out if you have a tech support problem, why can't we have a smart guy or gal go over to your house and help you fix it instead of you sitting on the phone? Our, our, head, of, our head of customer service says the only reason we can't fix your problem today is because you're not available. And that's just our approach to business. Mm-hmm. So it's just these simple, simple, simple things that you, if you over-service your customer, <laughs> what, what is Comcast and... And CenturyLink going to do nothing. Well, if they that's that's one of the questions I have though is is if they decide to just cut their rates dramatically. I mean, if they just decide we're going to lose money in Minneapolis until we make Travis run out of business. Well, um, then I guess- that's that's the fear. I mean, and that's something that we've faced in some other cities with municipals. And I think there are laws that are supposed to protect you, but unfortunately, the people that enforce those haven't been doing a very good job. Yeah, I would, I would, I would. Um... I would like to interview a few of our customers and say that if, if they gave it to you for free, would you even take it? Mm-hmm. I, I feel that we... Well, that's a good position to be in. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, I can I can give you thousands of people that would rather pay us a, a, to, to have the service mm-hmm. than get it free from somewhere else. Free is not always the best, right? It's, it's people want, they want a high bandwidth solution, low latency, low jitter, consistent, at a price point that makes sense. They're happy to pay for it. Right. And they're happy to deliver it. And, you know, our, our metric, metric of success is very simple. How many tech support calls do we get every day? We get one per thousand users, and 90% of those are inside Wi-Fi problems. So that's a good, that's, that's a good metric to work towards. 
you know, like I go back to the aquarium analogy, I'm really not concerned what anyone else is doing. I'm just more concerned about what we're doing. So I like it when the lady at the Broadband Institute called me the cowboy. Because that's sometimes what we feel like. It's like we're just marching on doing our own thing. You know, I I occasionally will drive up and down the street and see if CenturyLink has any customers in our area, and I have yet to find one. So I know we're doing something good. You've mentioned that you're interested in working in other cities, potentially. Sure. So, and not only that, but ones that don't have snow half of the year. Yeah, that's the big Achilles heel in, in Minnesota here is... Well, unlike today, which is beautiful, uh, we usually don't start till April 15th, and we're done November 15th. So we have a very short window uh, to build where our our network is completely underground, so we have to directionally drill everything, all the main line, all the backbone, all the drops to the homes. So from a construction standpoint, it's a big, big, big job. This isn't just stringing some fiber down some poles in the alley that are already there. Um but there's a ton of benefit to this network. You know, it's, it's underground, it's very reliable, it's, it's, it's Ethernet, so there's no, you know, no weird technologies or splitters or shared anything in there. It's simple to troubleshoot, it's simple to maintain, it's, it's consistent, it uses off-the-shelf electronics. So it's, just, it's very, very, very reliable. It's just we don't have enough months out of the year. And so what we've looked at is we've looked at maybe going to a city in the south somewhere. Mm-hmm. But the problem you run into is the bandwidth consumption is so high on these fiber networks that we need to be close to some place with adequate bandwidth. We can't be like in way up in northern Minnesota where our cost to deliver the service is so high. So we have to be near a major metropolitan area to, to get that type of capacity. Or, I mean, if you're familiar with some of the things like Allied Fiber, slowly building these um, neutral fiber routes across the U.S., presumably you yeah. just need to tap in somewhere exactly. where you get back to a point of Exactly. We have, to, we have to get back to somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, Cermak in Chicago, 511 here, NCC in Omaha. Mm-hmm. If we can just get back to somewhere like that, that solves a tremendous, tremendous problem. And it's, it's the problem I saw at the Minnesota Broadband Association is they were all talking about bringing bandwidth out to the farm or bringing bandwidth out to the rural area. But these people are going to use it. There's no difference between a user up in, you know, the Ironhead of, of Minnesota and a user in Minneapolis. They're all going to use the same amount of bandwidth. You've just got to be able to get it out of your network somewhere. And they have a much bigger challenge than we have here in Minneapolis. Right. Although, fortunately, in the Iron Range, they have the um, Northeast Service Cooperative now. So increasingly, we do have some of these Perfect. areas where there's yeah. been smart local investments. In that case enabled by the stimulus but yep. there's been you know people have done the work there to make sure that they have some of this available yeah so if i was a town and i was looking to have somebody come in and be an alternate provider that was would be very one of the very first things i would i would highlight is here is the way to get onto some fiber transit to get mm-hmm. out of out of our city back to a, a place where you can buy bandwidth at a reasonable price and that's in some ways how um you're expanding a little bit into st louis park and they've made it easier for you because they've provided that. Yeah, St. Louis Park is, you know, they're a classic example of a city doing it right. Um, you know, they, they've really got a forward thought. They're, they've got their, uh, they're, they're putting in extra conduit when they're doing construction. They're putting in extra fibers. They're leasing fibers. You know, they're, they're from, from my standpoint, and they're even encouraging uh, apartment buildings and MDUs and, and new construction to bring easy egress out to the right-of-way. I mean, these guys really, you know, the guys over there really got it figured out of how to do it right to entice people to come to town. And one of the things you said struck me, you, you're describing one of the things about St. Louis Park, and it's just they have the fiber. They've made it easy on you. You reached out to them and you said, hey, you know, we're kind of interested 
and they basically wrote back and said, "Here's the price." It, it was unbelievable. You know, uh, uh, Clint over in St. Louis Park. And we basically, I emailed him. And their said, CIO. Their CIO. Yeah, great guy. Said, "Hey, we would like to, you know, have some." fibers in St. Louis Park. He had already done all the homework with the city council, had already got it all passed, basically had a rate card, no different than if you were to call us up and say, I want fiber in Minneapolis, I can tell you here's how much it is. He operated just like a a normal, you know, what I would say a business operates that was in the business to uh, promote and utilize the services that the city had paid for. So he knew down to the fiber mile, he knew the routes, he knew the maps. I mean, he came out here. I've never seen a city act, anyone from a city act like Kind of like a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Here's all the data. Here's the price. How many do you want? Right. And I have them in stock right now, and I can get them going for <laughs> you. It was it was it was amazing to be honest with you. And so St. Louis Park is an area we're really interested in getting into. Uh, St. Paul, you know, we want to get into St. Paul city. Yeah, we want to get into <laughs> you know in Minneapolis we have this thing called the 494 694 loop, which is just a big circle around the city of freeways, and and we'd like to really, really focus inside there. We've got business initiatives. You know, we've got a lot of different initiatives associated with this fiber. You know, we're learning very simply that, you know, the wireless was an interesting technology. And the it, Wi-Fi in particular. It, Wi-Fi, in, yeah, was, was, was an interesting kind of bridge technology. But fiber really is the ultimate end-all technology. So out of these 30-plus different technologies we've had over the last 21 years, we finally feel we're at the, we're at the final technology that we'll install in our lifetime. So every time we bring a fiber up to a building, a home, a street light, you know, that'll be there long after we're gone. And that and that's and that that's the way it should be. You know, so we can really look at this investment as not just a short-term investment, but a, but a really a, a lifetime investment for us. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was Chris and Travis Carter, one of the co-founders of US Internet, a Minneapolis internet and data services provider. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you, Kathleen Martin, for the song Player vs. Player, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to Episode 194 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Amuse me.